Hello, and welcome to Outside World Occultism, the best and only Toho podcast on the internet where we try really hard to not talk about Fire Emblem because that is all we've done for the last two days. I'm Katya, and with me are JT. Hello. Me. Hi. F. Hello. And Lavender. Hello. So the main thing on the agenda we had for today was the human-yokai divide, but before we get that... Given, you know, the current time, the current climate, I think there's a certain long-awaited video game coming out this summer where you choose one of three characters and one of three animals at the beginning of the story and play through it. (laughs) And I think we sort of need to talk about Toho 17, Wily Beast and Weakest Creature. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so when is that coming out? Is that two weeks from now or one week from now? From when they get the episode, I believe it will be about 10 days. Yeah. Okay. Comic Cat starts the weekend of the tenth, I think. Should we do like a episode about the game after that then? Can someone whose keyboard doesn't sound like a machine gun double check that so I don't get put on blast? I'll check. <laughs> Comic Cat begins August ninth. Okay, good. I was right. You succeeded. So should we do an episode about that in a couple of weeks? It would probably be best to do it after we know the plot rather than doing baseless speculation. Although baseless speculation is our strong suit. Yeah, so let's begin today by doing some baseless speculation. Yay! Yay! I'm just going to start this out. Kutaka is the best design from the demo. Just... Yes. Oh, completely. Green. That's understandable, but I still like Urumi more. Because Mm. I just have a demon bias. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, I get the thing, but it's like a... It's either horns or wings... And I really have trouble choosing, so it's kind of a tie between them. I just really love Kotaka's design because I love bird girls, and her design is just super cute. Like, her dress is adorable, and I love her just extremely good, like... Everything? Yeah, her boots are really good. I think that they add, like, something to her design, which is the image to me of somebody who raises chickens. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's what her outfit looks like to me. And the number of things that were worked into the design for her, her hair being like a coxcomb. Her pose being based off of one of those guardian gods. The little bird in her hair, the tail feathers being like a reference to a specific kind of Japanese chicken. Oh, really? I have the machine gun keyboard on, so I can't actually look them up, but there's like a... It's... A very, very majestic-looking chicken. I'll find it. You will not believe the tail on this chicken. Oh. Yeah, and obviously the comb and the tail are both from, like, male chickens. Oh, yeah, it's the Yokohama chicken. This part's Mm. getting edited out of the final. (laughs) (laughs) There's our chicken. Oh. Oh, wow, that is a very majestic chicken. There's pictures of them with even longer tails but i just chose this one because it fits kutaka more yeah that one looks a lot more like kutaka's design than the one with the three meter tail feathers (laughs) (laughs) it's not an exaggeration give kutaka three meter tail feathers honestly it's what she deserves fan artists who listen to this podcast well we have no money to commission you people who have money to commission fan artists who listen to this podcast i'm sure there's one of you in our like 47 listeners from the last episode Kutaka with three meter tail feathers from that picture of a Yokohama chicken. If you Google it, you will find it and know it, or we'll link it when we publish the <laughs> podcast episode. This is a crucial uh, and important part 
of the Toho discussion, and it needs to happen. <laughs> it is. Yeah, so anyway, for some reason, my first reaction to the whole hail setting was that it was kind of a shame that it was going to be more like another isolated setting. Yeah. With its own cast and own characters, but in the end, President shows that it's actually probably better to have a bit more of a self-contained setting and characters. Yeah, it's a lot easier for people to make fan works that way, I think. Yeah, compared to like Hidden Star or something. Hidden Star, I think, had the issue of being way too connected. Yeah, it yeah. based its entire premise on being connected to previous characters, which while that could have worked in a different sort of franchise or series, it doesn't work in Toho because everybody likes new things and and nobody wants to break up their old ships. Yeah, the nature of the release schedules and just how they're structured means that people are just naturally going to group the characters from each new game into their own little group and come up with headcanons based on that. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to introduce new elements into that. Although there is some small bits of that in Wily Beast and Weakest Creature. There is mention of the fact that Kutaka doesn't actually live in hell. She just lives on Yokai Mountain, commutes to hell for work. <laughs> Don't we all? I think Aki also gets <laughs> mentioned by Kutaka a few times. Yeah, yeah, she's like her boss or something. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to make a lot of connection without like tying the characters together. And I think yeah. that's notable too coming out of Hidden Star and Four Seasons because I think the most successful character connection was the one that was the most tenuous in the game, which was Okina and Yukari. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's an actual like... Yukari is pretty competitive as far as pairings market and headcanons and such go. But Yukari like... has 16 wives. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop her. She makes the rules here. Seeing, I guess, a bit of Narumi and Marisa, at the same time, like, Narumi doesn't do a lot from a fan work sense that Alice already yeah. did. Yeah, unless she gets more expanded on in the future in regards to her personal magic studies, she probably won't end up that popular. Meanwhile, Alan is extremely popular, but not due to her connections to previous characters. Yeah. Yep, she's yeah, she's extremely kind of... popular because of Dog. Asmaya. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And yeah. I think she's got a lot like art because she's uh, cute, basically. But I don't think there's been a lot of Dojin's stories we found. She somehow hasn't, hasn't really connected in that sense. Yeah, I haven't really read anything featuring her, I think. I've seen some fan arts that are just like cute, silly comics about her new life at the shrine. Yeah. I do think that is another case of the characters having a forced history in Hidden Star and Four Seasons just sort of being successful because she gets integrated pretty well into the cast in Wild and Horned Hermit, although she mostly only shows up for like events and stuff. She sort of serves a role that the Hakure Shrine didn't have previously of being sort of the wide-eyed and cheery... Which previously, like, a lot of Dojin creators kind of typecast Sane into that. Or Marisa. Or Marisa, yeah, uh, earlier on. But neither of them is the perfect fit for that because they're... They have their own stuff going on. Yeah, they aren't Reimu's hangers-on. They have to be co-stars. Yeah. Like, Reimu doesn't really have a supporting cast of her own. There's definitely a Marisa sphere. Mm. <laughs> you can take a story about Marisa and Marisa's friends make marisa the star yeah it's not a reimu and marisa story yeah basically 
on a bridging back into hell. <laughs> Did we ever leave? I think the all the mythological connections and stuff like that are gonna be a lot of good fanfic fuel for the hell characters, I think, because pretty much everyone is gonna have a lot of random gods that they're connected to, and obviously the late late game god bosses might be some bigger guys, bigger bosses. Yeah, and yeah. I think Hell in particular has sort of been this long-term thread in Toho that has never been really revisited. It's never really been realized either. Like, we have a game with a fake Hell, we have a game with Hell in it, but there are no real mythological figures in it, at least that we know of because there's no dialogue. And then we have two games with Makai in it, which is hellish, not but it's hell. not a hell. <laughs> yeah, and then we have like a goddess of hell, but then it ends up being Hecatia, so... <laughs> People kind of expected there to be a hell game for a while. Yeah, there, yeah. there was a lot of build-up to it. A lot of people it. expected 16 to be the hell game, actually. Yeah. Mm. I know I was one. <laughs> I feel like our Discord channel had this thread of lots and lots of speculation about the next game just being tied into hell, tied into the story in the manga, and it turns out it is a hell story, but it's got nothing to do with any of the hell drama in all of the different manga that also had hell drama running concurrently. You might call what we've been doing Toho hell speculation. <laughs> <sighs> I was gonna say that. Shout out to the Soho Speculation Hell Discord, who are, I'm sure, like 90% of the people listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, should we get to the daily agenda? I do want to talk a little bit more about yeah. Wily Beast huh? and Wicked yeah. Creature. We talked about Kutaka. We, we didn't really talk about the other two girls or the, the jewel cover. The jewel the cover. Co- I'm so excited for dragons. There's going to be a dragon. I love dragons. We're finally going to be putting to bed after, what, 13 years? The mailing is a dragon joke. Finally. <laughs> Hopefully. Or maybe this will just add fuel to the fire. That or people are just going to ship them. People are just going to ship them. Yeah, this will just add fuel to the fire. You think people are going to throw away their jokes at the top of a hat? People are just going to ship them. Unless they ship them with the other being that's on the jewel case Mm. whoever that is so there's some silhouettes that people have kind of guessed are a phoenix and a dragon and somebody else probably a chinese emperor i do like that in sort of the last few games there has been quite a bit of chinese influence on the story from chinese myth and history really since 10 desires yeah 10 desires is really where it started i think yeah it's actually really nice to not have Gensokyo just the fantasy Japan. It's fantasy yeah. Japan and the areas that it's commonly had cultural influences from. And France. Yeah. And also there's a Greek goddess for some reason. Don't worry about it. She's not in Gensokyo yeah. unless she's on vacation. That's yeah, true. but it's a real kind of worms anyway. And I do think it's really nice that over time, mailing was not just the only Chinese representation yeah. in yeah. Toho. That was an unpleasant joke. Yeah, because obviously... It was an unpleasant joke, and it was... Yeah, she's not very good Chinese representation. I don't think she's bad in canon. The problem is that in fanon, people took her being the only Chinese character as a way to project a bunch of racist stereotypes about Chinese people. Yeah. 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 Like the whole exaggeration of her napping thing, that's... Yeah. Yeah. That's racism, babe. (laughs) 
And her being bad at her job is the stereotype of crappy Chinese goods. It's just, yeah, that ain't it, Chief. It was unfortunate. And also, there is a gigantic Chinese Toho fandom. Yeah. And they're, like, on another level. Don't they? All of the characters basically have names in the Chinese fandom that are just... Kanji? Yeah, a Chinese reading of the kanji in their name. And sometimes when it's characters who don't have kanji names... Because there's a lot of characters whose names are just in hiragana or katakana, and then, like, especially the hiragana characters, they will just reconstruct a Chinese name based on the kana, and that's just... It's so cool! I'll, I'll drink to that. That's next level. I really would like to know more about the Chinese fandom in general. I feel like, honestly, Western fandom is really disconnected from the rest of Toho fandom, even the Japanese oh, side yeah. of things. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I think part of that is that Western Toho fandom, especially in recent years, has been very schismatic. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Because you have, and I, I speak from experience, the sort of scumbag, weeaboo side of the fandom, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you have the lesbians. Here we go again with the horn's nest. <laughs> I I have kicked that hornet's nest a thousand fucking times. I mean, it deserves to be kicked. I used to be one of those hornets, and I hate admitting that. Oh my god. If they want to fucking fight me, they can bring it on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most of us... I'm pretty sure I could kick the ass of most angry 4chan weeaboos, like... Or Toho fans in general. <laughs> JT, you're just hitting the hornet's nest on a home run today, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but anyway. <laughs> my serious contempt for weeaboos slash myself circa 2016 aside, the Western fandom is very divided down the middle. The means of access are pretty limited, not just by what gets translated, but by what gets uploaded and what gets... It's basically what the people who are actually going to Japan and picking stuff up care about. Yeah, yeah, can confirm. The other side of that is the Western fandom, I think less so these days. The double-dealing character boom, I think, has sort of helped at least the half of the fandom that this podcast is targeted towards <laughs> has become much more generative and much more producing its own content. Whereas previously, there was sort of... And there sort of still is a very much a stigma against making your own content versus reading translated doujins is viewed as somehow superior because they're weeaboos. Yeah, it's Japanese. Yeah. Superior Japanese pictures. Yeah, folded folded <laughs> over a thousand times by hand before Comiket at a massive financial loss. <laughs> Shout out to the Dojin community who aren't creepy for being some of the most crazy, dedicated fans in the world. I'm sure, like, the Western Toho fandom is pretty small, but, like, without the engine of a feedback loop and Zun throwing in fuel every two years helps a lot, sure. But, like, without that, the Toho fandom would not be what it is today without the Toho fandom. Reitai Sai is just amazing. Shout out to all the Dojin authors out there who aren't pedophiles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my yeah, headset just I, died. I think it was close. <laughs> this is getting edited out of the podcast. <laughs> it certainly is. Okay, I think I can hear you again. Hello. Okay. Hello. We spent the last five minutes making fun of you exclusively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I probably deserve it. They can listen to all of it in the in the editing process. Uh, so, um, yeah, big shout out to the Dojin community. I'm pretty sure none of us would be here in some capacity or another without them. I certainly wouldn't be here as 
soon as I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've like, spent the last couple of years leeching off them. Not like <laughs> monetarily because I'm getting paid a penny, but it's my hobby basically. Yeah. It's what you do. My thing. My identity. Obviously, without dedicated translators such as Lavender, we wouldn't even have the trickle of Toho content that we, the Western fandom, get. Mm. And I think a lot of the Western fandom doesn't appreciate how much stuff out there doesn't get translated. Yeah, they think that the stuff that gets scanned is all there is. Yeah. And like yeah. I, in particular, I think there's sort of my indignant C-list fanfiction author talking, especially in in weeb circles, the the stigma against fanfiction as a medium. What they don't realize is that the staggering majority of Dojin publishing is not comic. It's fanfiction that's published in book form. Mm-hmm. Secondary shout out to the Ceiling Club fandom. Oh boy. Which is relevant to our topic today, which is bringing us back around. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about the Ceiling Club. The Ceiling Club fandom's thousand-page novel of fanfiction. Yeah, the 1,000-page Ren Mary Gigatome. <laughs> the the yeah. Holy Bible. I never realized that when you say Ceiling Club out loud, it sounds like you're talking about paneling and insulation or something. <laughs> Better that than paving tiles. It's supposed to be like Secret Seals Club or something, right? It's the Club of Secret Seals because foo tends to be mistranslated surprisingly often, considering the fact that it can also refer to an action and an object. Yeah. It's the Club of Investigating Secret Things Which Are Seal. Yeah, but that sort of thing is why you have people who still call it Fire Emblem Sword of Seals, even though it's obviously doing the sealing, not being related to seals. You brought up Fire Emblem again. I thought we were trying <laughs> so hard not <laughs> to be... I am bringing up a new Fire Emblem. This is a Fire Emblem podcast. Yeah, now. this is this is uh, Edelgard gang represent, I think, here. Anyway, <laughs> Yokai, please... We had a topic today. Yeah, we did, yeah. didn't we? Uh, sometimes I forget that. Yeah, in past tense, we did. Our topic of the day is very related to the Ceiling Club, but it isn't entirely the Ceiling Club. It's basically continuing off of where we were last time with the whole what makes a human and what makes a yokai. I basically had a whole theory for that about this, and. If you think about it, the couple things that we know about the definition of yokai is that they're creatures that mostly, but not all of them, exist based on human fear and belief. And mostly, but not all of them, eat people. And mostly, but not all of them, are dangerous to humans. So basically, I don't think we have a single, like, definitive definition of what a yokai is. Yeah, there's exceptions to everything. Well, they can all be dangerous to humans, they just aren't necessarily all dangerous to humans. Like, a ceiling fan can also be dangerous to you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is in its current situation. Yeah, you know what else can be dangerous to you? A paving tile can be dangerous to you when you're, say, driving along down a highway and it falls off the back of a truck and flies at your car, nearly killing you, but it doesn't mean I'm going to be worried about one if I see in the driveway. Yeah. In but, Toho 326, that is, in fact, going to be a character. 
The yokai of the truck that tried to isekai me will be in Toho 326. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the point is that if you look at what counts as a yokai and what doesn't, basically it's just a catch-all for everything that doesn't fit in the other categories. So basically the line where a human becomes yokai is not per se the line where they meet the definition of a yokai, but the line where they stop meeting the definition of a human, whatever that is. In like general Japanese usage, yokai is just like a general term for monsters, supernatural creatures. I think actually when you say it like that, we're looking not at like a singular phase change, we're looking at like a triple point situation too, right? If we think of human and yokai as like solid and liquid, and then there's also gods which have a fuzzy boundary with yokai and a fuzzy boundary with humanity so i think it's sort of like phases of matter stuff right where sometimes you have a human becomes a yokai sometimes you have a human becomes a god sometimes you have yokais becoming gods and back and all that yeah yeah like for example sana is she's considered to be a human but she's a half goddess or something like that right or she's a human and she's a god fully basically yeah right the dew point of humans and gods i'm sorry people who don't study like temperature and pressure and <laughs> like phases of matter I, I don't have a better metaphor Chemistry is required reading for the Outside World Occultism podcast. You you cannot get into Toho without a chemistry degree. <laughs> well, I gave a job as a chemist, but yeah. That's, what, that's why you're on the show. As long as you know how to operate a pressure cooker, you're probably fine for this metaphor. But also I live with my parents, and I think that's a, probably quite the olive branch to extend to most people. Um, so to extend the metaphor a little bit, we also have the, uh, I guess you could call it the plasma phase with immortals slash arhats buddhas and that's a pretty interesting topic because yeah you have not just miko and sega and all of them moving away from humanity but you also have kasa trying to become more human through that route or is she right mm-hmm. yeah i'm not sure if that's a separate phase as much as it is a property that can be applied to really any template right because we have Aaron is allegedly a human Definitely immortal, and almost certainly Omoyakane. Yeah, basically. I think, like, there's immortal gods, so I don't think immortality is as much a barrier on that. Moko is still considered human. She's not... Yeah. She's not even a really a yokai-like human, other than that she lives in the woods and, you know, blazes it. <laughs> <laughs> Fujiwara no Toko, am I right? I mean... Uh. <laughs> Our only sample size for characters that would blaze it is her and Mamizo, so yes. And they're friends. Blazing it is a yokai action. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the big thing was that in general Japanese use, yokai is just a general term, but in Toho it's actually split up further. Like, there are groups of monsters that aren't considered yokai in Toho, even though they would be otherwise. But also... There's the fairies, which you'll say are a type of yokai in general Japanese consciousness, but... They're just kind of nature spirits. Then you have the toho yosei, which are obviously not yokai. Yeah, basically. So it's kind of a hard to define because we can't rely on either... The general use definition is obviously not the one we need, but also if you look in Perkimento or something... 
The only thing it actually gives for the definition of a yokai is literally most yokai do this, but some do not. So there's basically no concrete definition of what makes a yokai. I don't actually think for this topic, though, that we need a complete characterization of the set of yokai. We only yeah, we don't need necessarily. to be concerned with the neighborhood of the line, some ball containing both yokai and human. Right. Yeah. Right. We only need to be concerned of the yokai that exist within that. I should stop using topology metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> with they just need to be like close enough to that line. And I think that like however much Raisin is definitely not human and how exactly she fits into yokai doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because she's got big floppy rabbit ears and humans will think of her as a yokai. Yeah, they'll think of her as a yokai unless she wears her big hat from Forbidden Scrollery. Yeah, the magic hat. Basically, the line is, do humans think of you as a yokai? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the line is very fuzzy and ill-defined, and I think that for this exercise, that means that we need to talk about the fortune teller again. That is how we got on this topic in the first place. We're Soho character. You know, when he gets exercised or exterminated, whatever term you want to use. Same thing. You know, Reimu drops that line, which is kind of chilling. Think about it, where it's like, you know, it's forbidden for a human from the village to become a yokai. The implication is that you will die or you will be killed, rather, if you pursue that line. And Reimu also talks about keeping an eye on certain other humans from the village in Forbidden Scrollery, and the panel of Forbidden Scrollery where she is talking about that shows Kosuzu and Marisa. I feel like almost in Gensokyo, the line between human and yokai is more than anything else sort of political in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's mostly just enforced by the sages rather than being an explicit metaphysical line. Basically, are you a threat to humans' perception of yokai causing a problem to Gensokyo's balance? Exactly. There's no problem with people like Miko, for example, who have achieved superhumanity with spiritual means. There's no real problem with somebody becoming a god or a Buddha or some other, like a hermit, some kind of sp- through some kind of spiritual method, because that's kind of the often the basis of the religions. Even if they could be dangerous to other people in that form too, because Sega is a is probably a danger to humanity, but. <laughs> It's not enforced that she can't exist. It's not enforced by the sages. Sega is a danger to humanity. Because she did fight off the Yellowstone supervolcano for a bit there in <laughs> A Wild and Hermit. So, like, there are... She, in particular, has violated... I'm pretty sure every divine precept she has been made aware of, just to prove the point. She's also violated the Geneva Convention. <laughs> Sega is a danger to humanity in the same way that a barrel of radioactive waste is. <laughs> but yeah, the other, obviously, since you brought up Marisa, the big group that gives us some definition of what makes a yokai, or what makes a human turning into a yokai, is obviously that transformation of a magician into a yokai magician is one that involves dropping food, sleep, and... I think it's just dropping food, sleep, and aging. So does that mean that anyone who doesn't age, sleep, or eat, does that mean they're a yokai? Moko is human, and we know that she does none of those things unless someone is looking after her. Yeah, but that's like a... <laughs> that's just depression. <laughs> <laughs> well, she doesn't need to do those things 
to survive either because she'll just come back once she reaches the turning point of you cannot survive without doing xyz yeah guess Um, i'll die the difference between moko and a magician is that moko will die without food but she'll just come back and she'll be fine A, a yokai magician specifically is not someone who has stopped eating sleeping and aging it's somebody who has basically converted their body so that it runs entirely on magic they don't need food or sleep or any of that because they just kind of draw on a pool of magic to sustain their existence i think what's also key in considering the line between humans and yokai is that becoming a genio has within itself contained the idea of explicitly rejecting your own humanity. You won't just (laughs) accidentally become a yokai. You have to be immersing yourself into these non-human ideas and beliefs and powers for a significant amount of time to just stop being human. Yeah. Mm. Or you have to die an unhelpful death. Why did I say unhelpful? I meant unpleasant. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> just, just, you know, oh, oh, you died. Well, that's that's great. Thanks so much for that. You know, now we're gonna bury you. Peeled over Gee. somewhere where I could walk over your corpse to avoid getting in a puddle. <laughs> <laughs> this post brought to you by the rich. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's really important to consider in Gensokyo when it comes to human and yokai and their relationship is Gensokyo is designed as a refuge for yokai and it is designed to sustain yokai. The human village is, for all intents and purposes, really just a power source. The human village is the powerhouse of the Gensokyo. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. We are mixing so many high school science metaphors today. That's just the the attitude we're in. Yes. So basically, in simple terms, the yokai don't have any reason to care about anyone outside the village from getting turned into the yokai. As long as it doesn't, like, somehow otherwise threaten the village or the balance or whatever. Yeah, unless there's, like... A plague that people outside the village are carrying that could possibly spread to the village. There's no reason to, like, care about whoever lives outside the village living or dying. Although I don't know if Reimu herself is entirely aware of the no need to care about people outside the village's status as human or yokai. There's a few characters, I think, where the question of how much exactly they know about Gensokyo is very open and very pertinent and i would name reimu as one of them i would name akyu as one of them i'd probably even include kane as one of them mm. yeah she does know the history and all that especially since she's a fairy anthrope of the species that basically exists to warn humans about the danger of yokai is the fact that she's not really doing anything to warn them about yokai nowadays mean anything or does it not i'm still so sad she didn't show up in forbidden scrollery because i think like she would have added a lot to it yeah Yeah, i think zoon wanted to focus on interpersonal conflicts though yeah and that is sort of how it played out in the end it's not like she couldn't have been a player in the interpersonal conflicts either especially since we already know she knows akio yeah Mm. yeah 
I think maybe we can hope for in the future some kind of book from Aki's perspective in the same vein as Perfect Memento or um, Symposium of Post-Mysticism even. We are almost at the time for a new compendium, aren't we? It would be after 17 if we're following mm. the one every uh, four Windows games. Because yeah. the first one was 6 through 9. Nice. Then it was 10 through 13. About 14 through 17. So if Zune keeps the same pace, we should have another Acube like sometime next year. Yeah, I hope so. We can hope for some some kind of interaction with Kana in that one, hopefully. That will mm. expand more on the lore and her place in the village. There's actually quite a lot of yokai who live or work or otherwise exist in the village. And it really is, from an economic perspective, the human village is very much a symbiotic relationship between human and yokai. And it seems like maybe the humans are on some level aware of this, but they try not to think about it too hard. They're really probably not aware of the extent to which this happens. They're probably like, oh yeah, one of those tailors down the street is a fox, and sometimes she has customers that have very pointy ears, but we're not going to think about that, and we're going to ignore the person next door who, I think, her head fell off, but <laughs> just ignore that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of hard to get a crasp on how much the villagers actually think about and know about the yokai in the village. The only villager perspective we've ever had is someone who was picked to not know the things that even the audience knew about the setting. Yeah, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. The whole arc of Forbidden Scrollery is about Kosuzu's loss of... Felteredness. Yeah, ignorance or innocence or whatever you call it about how Gensokyo works. Yeah, Kosuzu peeled away the veil and then the veil waved back at her and... uh she was into it. She liked it. Yeah. The veil just sort of showed up in her house with a cat smile and some <laughs> scary stories. About Reimu. Mostly, yeah. I wonder if Yokai think of Reimu as the boogeyman. I think mostly they think of her as a friend, much to her annoyance. I feel like a lot of the weak Yokai are sort of wigged out by her. Yeah, that's what I meant. Not like our main character or main character tier. Yokai just like some lady who lives in the woods under a tree and eats people sometimes. Yeah. I think the Kisumes of the world are probably pretty spooked by Reimu. Well, maybe not Kisume specifically because she's from underground. Yeah, the Tokikos. Yeah, it definitely won't stop them from picking a fight. Yeah. Half the spell card rules was to stop Reimu from just killing people yeah (laughs) and stop people from killing her i think the spell card rules are a really ingenious idea because it made the low-level yokai less afraid of the shrine maiden and it made the high-level yokai less able to manipulate what goes on in gensokyo by just getting rid of the shrine maiden when she starts being annoying. At the same time, they did sort of write Zun into a bit of a narrative corner, which I think it's sort of notable that he's backed away from using the spell card rules in recent games, really. Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom, Zun was just like, we're not doing the spell card rules at all, like, explicitly in the plot. And then he wrote himself into a different corner with the Ultramarine Orb Elixir and was like, actually, we did it on classic mode and they're just that good. <laughs> I think that there's definitely a place for, if you want to make the threat a real threat, just have them use named attacks that aren't spell card. You see that in all sorts 
of other games and anime and stuff, and there's generally not a problem with knowing whether an attack is meant to, you know, murder you or meant to just look really flashy and cool while it beats the absolute crap out of you. Because I think before Legacy of Lunatic Kingdom in particular, and this sort of tied into the sort of versus wiki approach to Toho that a lot of people took and probably still take, where they have to use it as a way of framing the stakes. Really, all the spell cards were is narrative justification for what had already been going on in the PC-98 games. In Lotus Line story, because we get the changing spell card backgrounds first there. I mean, Lotus Line story, I think, is the first quote-unquote spell card rules incident. I know, like, canonically, there's the vampire incident that inspired them, but that's not that's not actually embodiment of Scarlet Devil. That's a completely different incident that was also Vermelia. But it's post-Mystic Square, though. Yeah, it's post-Mystic Square. In my opinion, there's probably been an equivalent to the spell card rules for a while among yokai, but it hadn't been really adopted by yokai exterminators. You need to be able to fight your friends while knowing there's a clear boundary for how much fight your friends you can do. Exactly. The other thing, and why I point to Lotus Land's story about this when you're saying this, is that in particular the boss fight against Ellie... She can only be harmed when she doesn't have her scythe. So if we're assuming that this is sort of the fanon, everyone's trying to kill each other, dark, grim PC-98, that doesn't make any sense. So there has to have been some kind of, like, quote-unquote code of conduct regulating this, even though the term spell card didn't exist. I'm not getting where you're going. She can't be hurt when she has her scythe out because it blocks your bullets. Yeah, yeah. She just blocks, which is the one thing that you never see anyone doing after that. She has it out, and that is, she allows you to hit her, though, instead of just blocking. Yeah, I personally like to think of the... You can just block, but narratively, that doesn't make sense. Theoretically, Ellie could have just been blocking the entire time and Raymu got some lucky shots in, but mechanically within the game, that doesn't work because you're homing shots home to the site. Yeah, I guess that's fair. Yeah, I think your interpretation of events as they happen in the games sort of have to be on some level detached from the exact events of the games. You need to be able to interpret them in a more story-like sense. Take it with the whole offering to the gods of salt. Yeah, and especially in terms of the like spell card rules, there's the whole thing that in the games, the one-shot, one-kill rule only applies to the player. But narratively, it applies to everybody. Yeah, basically. That's a big sign that there's already a big, really obvious disconnect. You have to be ready to give like the credit of the dial to other similar things. Right. And I don't think that necessarily there's a whole everybody is trying to kill each other yeah, interpretation no. in the PC-98 games. It's just there isn't anything in place to stop everybody from doing that. Like, I'm sure there's people who would gladly fight as unfairly as they possibly could, especially against a 12-year-old or 14-year-old shrine maiden, but your opponents are people who want a fun fight, not necessarily a fight they're going to win. Yeah, the gritty PC-98 thing is more of a fanon thing and not really fanon. 
we're like way off the human Leona yeah. line at this point. Well, yeah, yeah. true. I think but that's just how it works. Well, we already did cover most of what it is, I think. Yeah, I Triple think point. we're at 55 in the recording. Do we want to do our mailbox? Do we want to like do the atmosphere of PC98 or something next week? Because that's sort of where we were. I would, that yeah. would be a decent idea. Yeah. yeah. PC98 oh. is a really rich it's topic. It's really interesting in contrast with Windows and on its own. Yeah, so I guess the line between human and yokai is very fuzzy and like you have to kind of look at it from the political perspective. It's fuzzier than the line between topics on this podcast, and that says something. <laughs> yes. Now that we're not, now that we're probably done cutting out like eight minutes of of secret April Fool's conspiracies, and yeah. the human yokai thing really is something that you have to think about from the perspective of Gensokyo itself and the political situation there, and how human and yokai relate to each other. And so, like, really, I think the only thing that'll get you in trouble is becoming a yokai in a way that is inconvenient to the sages. Yeah, the sages specifically. And that influences the villagers to try to become yokai or what have To stop fearing yokai. Yeah, to stop fearing yokai. They're just going to be there to remind you that you can't do this. You can't do that, Star Fox. (laughs) (laughs) So let's take some mailbag questions. I have two this week. The first one I wanted to talk about is a question from Tabarone on Tumblr, who says, How old are moon rabbit soldiers like Rayson and the other nameless rabbits in Silent Center and Blue supposed to be, at least physically? Does the moon use child soldiers? Probably. Uh, Rayson, too, is definitely not 18 years old physically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He's just baby. And obviously they're like, they're ageless and immortal, uh, chronologically speaking. I think moon rabbits are essentially fairies. Yeah, they're just like fairies, except they look like five years older. Yeah. Yeah. Except Rayson the first, but that's because she's on Earth. But she's been on Earth for a while, and I think is the exception to a lot of rules there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's... Yeah. The Watatskis call the moon rabbits this child or whatever, which could be just an awkward translation, because I know ko is a little bit more general sometimes, and if that was the word they used. Especially when you say, like, this child. The term they use, I think, is either a term of great familiarity or referring to, oh, you know, that kid. Very Lunarian. And they don't seem like the type to be super familiar with the moon rabbits, despite how much... Toyohime has a weird mom-like relationship to them. Chang'e mm. is the real rabid mom, though. Yeah, so this is a good question, I think, because it sort of brings up the question of, like, age in Toho, which is something that... Um... A hot discourse topic. Now yeah. who's kicking the hornet's nest? <laughs> it's entirely possible to talk about this without kicking any kind of hornet's nest. Age in Toho is like very inconsistent and sort of nebulous fluid thing, I guess. Yeah, very nebulous, very basically characters are as old as they need to be for the story. Um They're all old enough to drink though. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's no cops in Gensokyo, so you can drink as much as you like, no matter how old you are. There's one cop in Gensokyo, she showed up in Phantasmagoria of Dim Dream, and don't worry, she's cool. <laughs> Kodohime is the one cop that isn't a bastard. <laughs> That's why she's in Gensokyo. I don't know about that. She does put Reimu in jail. 
Yeah, but... <laughs> sometimes deserves to be in jail in the PC-98 games. Yeah. She's the worst child. Reimu is in truancy prison for, for Kotohime's ending. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I feel, a hornet's nest. Yeah. <laughs> The characters in Toho are generally, like, as old as they need to be for the story. Like, we all have our own headcanons for, like, specific characters are. Yuka is 40. 40? In my heart. That's, that's, your brain is so huge. <laughs> um, 40 what? I... <laughs> Thousand. <laughs> we have, I think, canon ages on... Kosuzu. Aku and Kosuzu's ages, roughly. Obviously, Sumuriko. Ko is a high school student, so that's a pretty narrow band. She's probably around 17 to 18 right now, since she has presumably progressed a year in the Sazai-san time of Toho. Yeah. yeah. So Toho's this weird demi-Sazai-san time. Aku is definitely not 10 anymore. It's like Sims. They age if it's necessary for the story. Yeah. Remu is definitely not in her teens anymore, but... How much out of them is she? Is she 21? Is she 31? We don't know. I personally believe that she's like 25 or something. 26. I would put Reimu and Marisa in their mid-20s. Yeah. Aku in her early 20s and Kosuzu is a year or two younger than her. Yeah, and the reason it gets weird is because Sun does give like specific dates for a lot of stuff. Yes. Then you have people not aging even though the story explicitly says that it's been like 10 or 5 years or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the characters are basically as old as they need to be. This is a big tangent from Moon Rabbit, isn't it? Yeah, I'm about to bring it back. The characters are basically as old as they need to be for the story. This sort of means that looking at it from a perspective of does the moon use child soldiers? I think you could tell a story about the moon using child soldiers. Yeah, yeah. you can absolutely do that. Because it's within the realm of interpretation. Exactly. It, it is one of those things where there's not a definitive way to be like, oh, the moon uses child labor because the rules in Toho and the rules of the Lunarians and their societies. The rules of just not being human. Yeah, and the rules of just not being human are so vastly different from any sort of sense of human morality or whatever mm. that the question does not have the same bite that it would be like you, if you were like does, does this real country use child soldiers is i think a much yeah. different question or even does... if it was the fictional country with a human population and understood human lifespans that's yeah like the lunarians are sort of meant to be a bit morally reprehensible at least as a society so it's definitely a good story that you could tell to say that they use child soldiers but it doesn't have as much impact as if they were like using human child soldiers yeah yeah Mm. you could argue was junko doing the same thing when she invaded the moon i think the fairy compression because fairies are much more explicitly unambiguously children they're the only characters in the books where zun is like in one of the fairy manga like children shouldn't drink but they're fairies so it's (laughs) fine yeah that's the thing about fairies is that they are children on basically all levels I guess a more accurate term would be childlike, because yeah. they're not human children, which is... They were never born. They've been, like, eight years old for eternity. Yeah. They've been eight years old for eternity, but they're eight years old. They're magically talented, completely clueless children who never, ever, ever learn from their mistakes, which is great. Yeah. 
They're children who don't stop being children and face no consequences for any of their actions. Basically, the world's worst second grade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you could view the moon rabbits in that same way. They are eternal middle school. Yeah, nature spirits in the same sense that the fairies are, although not explicitly in the lore, I think. Yeah. And the thing with the moon, too, is the moon is timeless. Fairies don't age because their nature, the scale upon which a fairy has to age for that to be a meaningful thing is so far beyond human comprehension that it's like billions of years. Yeah. Which ties into some nice Yuka headcanons I have that I can bring up at some other time. <laughs> <laughs> we can bring them up in the BC-98 episode. Exactly. There we go. So, but the moon rabbits don't age because the moon is stagnant. It's like a big theme with the Lunarians. And even like the sort of the quote-unquote woke Lunarians, which is basically Toyohime, as far as people who are still actually on the moon, maybe Sagame. Sagame is probably woke but doesn't care. Yeah, she Sagame is, I think, kind of like, to make a very divergent reference, like George Smiley or any given John le Carre character, where she's probably well aware of the flaws of everything, but still keeps doing her job. Mm. Yeah, I'd argue that for Toyohime as well, which is why I like her so much in contrast to Kaguya, hashtag rare pairs no one else cares about. (laughs) Uh, I think Toyohime has a lot of idealism still. She still believes that the moon is a good idea for a society, just a poor execution, IMO. Yeah, and I think Sagame doesn't have that as much. I think Sagame is much more of an air in contrast to someone who knows things and maybe doesn't act on them of her own Anyway, Lunarian discourse is a whole, like, you could get me on that for a long time, and that's not even next episode's topic. It's a whole five episodes, at least. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, so I guess the answer to your question is, yeah, the moon technically does use child soldiers, probably, maybe. If you want to believe that. The moon could use child soldiers, I think is the answer. Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of room to explore that and talk about the soldiers themselves and how they feel about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. We have one more mailbox question, don't we? Yes, we have one more question, and it is from Blob Mob, who <laughs> says, Can you talk about Kanako and Suwako's relationship slash dynamic? I feel like that's almost a whole episode. There's a lot of stuff to piece in on there. The short version is that they basically contrast with each other in two main ways, with being a more traditional god and being a more adaptive god, and in the second way with being more open about wanting to be praised, whereas just wanting the power that you get from being praised. I think the other thing to talk about with them is that Suiko, in her, I think, Mountain of Faith profile, they talk about that she was actually sort of fine with fading away in the outside world. She wasn't really the driving force behind the... She didn't mind leaving the Age of Gods. Yes. Mm. I think she's sort of the type to believe that, like... When humans needed gods to provide for them, it was a necessity for the gods to be there, but now that the humans are making or breaking it on their own, she can just fade away while knowing, well, either they'll make it or they'll on their own. 
That's a really interesting way of looking at it because in that sense you could say that she is also embracing technology and this technological age of the humans of the outside world just in a different way than Kanako who is looking to become a god of technology and sort of make technology this thing that humans come to gods for. I think Kanako is definitely more afraid of fading away than Suako and I think that probably has to do with the fact that Suako Mm -hmm. is older. Yeah and Kanako's power comes from defeating Suako in the first place and asserting control. Also, Kaneko started out as a conglomeration of human divine spirits, so she has human origins, whereas Suiko was completely inhuman. Right, and Suiko would have an existence even if she faded away because she's part of the myriad gods. And Eight million. Kaneko is a conglomerate of individuals that could, didn't exist, and will not exist. So I think that kind of explains their... She might become a Yude, but... She wouldn't, like, be able to peacefully pass on like a normal human. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting thought, Kaneko becoming a ghost. Yeah, speaking of historical connections, in terms of real-life parallels, there's the whole thing about how at the real-life Suva Shrine, or Suva Shrines, because there's, like, dozens of them, the two gods that they worship are a married couple. Obviously, mm-hmm. everyone knows that by now. Yeah. <laughs> Zoom said gay rights. <laughs> Kaneko and Suwako are... Extremely married, tall mom, small mom, and they have a medium daughter. She's a medium medium. (laughs) 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 Yes, exactly. (laughs) She is, in fact, a medium medium. Sane is directly related to Suako, which I think just sort of... Um, sometimes you'll hear people say that, you know, that means Suako has had a relationship with a man or whatever. And certainly, yes, that is a possibility... They're also, like, extremely powerful magic users. Yeah, like, anything is possible through the power of magic and godly miracles. And there's definitely mythological standpoints for, this god had a kid, but don't worry about how. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, like, gods that clip out of other people's brains, and it's like, I'm your kid now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not a Tuma. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's quite an old reference. Yeah, no one's going to get that. (laughs) In case case you forgot I was Bones. uh... (laughs) So the thing about the Moria family is that they are the first example of that kind of family dynamic in Toho. And I still treasure them for that. I think that the whole fact that they're just kind of running this like little family business basically on top of a mountain trying to keep the faith going i guess it's cute yeah yeah it's very it's very cute it's very sweet it works a ghibli movie basically yeah yeah could totally be a ghibli movie you could definitely envision like a ghibli movie about a girl from the outside world trying to keep her magic moms alive by transporting the family to a realm of fantasy Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah i kind of want to see that now yeah, Me too. we've ruined ourselves again for whatever the next big films may be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, by the way, if I may plug a bit, there's this doujin named Jessica Kanako's War from New Kobo from a couple of months back, I think it was translated. I think it's a really interesting exploration of both their histories and their relationship. In a, It's got a lot of the real-life mythology and the Toho lore mixed yeah. I think it's a pretty interesting experience. 
that's so interesting. You'll have to link it, and maybe we can like put the link in the yeah, sure. description of the podcast. Yeah, the yeah the description. At the same time, I think linking Dojins in the podcast yeah, description true. is sort of this shaky ground. True. Like maybe, maybe we won't do it. Title drops are one thing, but it is still like technically piracy. We could just write the title yeah. of the Dojin we discussed in this episode. Yeah. Is blah blah blah. Yeah. Sounds good. If the art of Pixiv isn't, like, full of porn, uh, like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Please, Dojin artists, yeah. just learn to do what every single Tumblr artist did before they got nuked and have two separate Pixivs for... <laughs> Here's my account that you can link on a friendly safe for work podcast for all ages and here's where i put and here's my horny account all the stuff that we refuse to talk about on this show yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah the other thing i think that's sort of interesting with kanasua is they have the heaven and earth contrast and people talk about that a lot i think it's also important to include sane as the humanity aspect there mm-hmm. yeah. that's true she's the most ordinary and she's kind of keeping them grounded i guess yeah in addition yeah, to being she... the literal human she's the one who has the ties to the world kanako and suiko usually are sitting in their shrine being bastards kanako's plotting and suiko's probably roasting her plans <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be that accurate. <laughs> Maybe Suiko's out of the shrine getting up to mischief. They're not the ones dropping by the Hakure shrine for, you know, banter and tea. To flex on the shrine maiden. Suiko's only appearance outside of the Moria shrine was the Inaba. Hiso Tensoku. Oh yeah, that counts. But that was also, <laughs> like, related to their plans. She and Suiko was just making some mischief. Yeah. 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 They're not the ones who are part of the world. They're living at proper gods. It's a nice world, they're just living in it. (laughs) The mountain must come to Kaneko. They're sort of looking down on the world, and Sane is the one who's out there evangelizing, hanging out with Reimu and drinking all her Pepsi. Handling all the -the on-the-ground negotiations with the uh, Kappa. She's like the connection to the world. Which yeah. I think is an important element that... I mean, on one hand, if you're going into, like, Kaneko and Suko, they obviously have a lot more history together than the 20-some years that Sane has existed as a human person. Mm. As far as their dynamic today, I think Sane is usually... And I say this as, as a Raysana fan. She usually is put more with Remu and Marisa, you know, the core protagonists, and sort of the Moria dynamic is much more Kanazua-focused. Yeah. That's true. I think she's an important piece of that puzzle, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kanazua and their daughter is better Kanasu, I think. Yeah, we don't really get to see much of what goes on inside the shrine itself. We don't really get to see what their home life is like, which <laughs> I think is... I wish we mm-hmm. did. Yeah, that's one of those things that is left open for interpretation and the fans to... Next manga, please. ...run with as they will. And you talk about Sane being the sort of the human connection the who goes out and does all the like the bridging to the shrine... And when you put it that way, it's really interesting to me that Kaneko is the one who gets involved in the Symposium of Post-Mysticism. Although I don't think that Sane would have been a very good representative for... How old was she at the time? Like, 19? Yeah, exactly. Like, she would have probably floundered a lot more than Kaneko did. She would have gotten steamrolled by Miko. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I mean, I um, kind of wanted to see that, but... I think in, like, D&D terms, Kaneko is the intelligence, Suiko is the wisdom, and Sane is the charisma. And at the end of the day, there are definitely meetings you want each of those skill sets at. And I think the symposium is much more of a detailed philosophical leaders of the the groups rather than maybe their most passionate advocates. Can you imagine a symposium with like Sanae and uh, Futo? like yeah Futo Inchirin. and Inchirin as the representatives? Um, that's just that's just that's just hidden masquerade. Yeah, it starts as a philosophical discussion and ends with them getting drunk and trashing the Hakurei Shrine. That's the <laughs> instead of Remu bursting in at the end, it's they burst in on on Remu and raise out. a ridiculous amount of hell. <laughs> I'd love to read that dojin. It needs to be fr- framed as like a like a found video program. <laughs> yeah, just, just just some some kappa found footage of Fudo Ichirin and Sane skateboarding down Yokai Mountain and blasting Eurobeat. <laughs> image that's going to come out of this question so i think that's like that's where i'm <laughs> i'm yeah, happy with yeah. the state yeah, of the podcast good. we yeah. nailed that question we did before we go so the topic for next week is going to be pc98 the tone especially yeah so send in your questions whether about that topic or you know whatever else you want us to talk about fire emblem yeah no. <laughs> send us send us send us all your fire emblem don't questions send us story spoilers though don't be a uh, rude boy yeah, don't send in spoilers, but do send us questions about Fire Emblem. Um, <laughs> before we go, I also need to issue a correction. Apparently, the all that nonsense I talked about Kaguya and Moko being d- meant to be in Scarlet Weather Rhapsody it was just nonsense and like a rumor, supposedly. So, I guess yeah, don't don't listen to me on that. Um, Please, if you're listening to any of us for any serious advice, I ask you to reconsider your life choices and then, like, listen to my brother, my brother, and me instead. (laughs) (laughs) Are we getting paid for this? (laughs) I don't think so. We're getting a a fat check from the McElroys for that one. Oh, speaking Um, of which, before the end of the episode, a message from our sponsor, Blue Apron. <laughs> okay. Blue apron Zun's legal team, we are not actually being paid for this by podcasting legend McElroy family or uh food delivery service Blue Apron. Please don't sue us. This is a non-commercial fan project, uh like everything yes. else that's permitted under your terms of use, which are extremely generous. You're awesome. I love you. <laughs> yes. Isn't um so now say that in Japanese. That's the show. <laughs> that's all folks. I guess you're the host, so I guess you do the sign off. <laughs> sure. Um that's the show. Thank you for listening to Asked World Occultism and from all of us occultists, uh See you next week. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs>